This is 2SER, the Sahaja Yoga Meditation Program. And today, true to the title, we're going to reflect on the nature of Sahaja Yoga and the nature of meditation. Today, Peter Ehrfeldt is on the panel. This is Brian Bell on the microphone. And we have a notable guest in the studio, Dr. Ramesh Manoksha. Welcome to the program, Ramesh. Thank you. Ramesh, born here in Sydney, has all those university degrees that allow him to practice as a medical doctor. He spent eight years in the National Therapies Unit of the Royal Hospital for Women. And recently he gained a PhD, his Doctor of Philosophy degree, with high praise from his mentors, into research into, and a thesis about, the effect of mental silence on health and behaviour. In other words, he has written a major and respected scientific work on meditation and its effects. As mentioned earlier, this is the Sahaja Yoga Meditation Program. But I'll hold back the first question to Ramesh concerning meditation and explain to new listeners a little about Sahaja Yoga. Yoga means union. It's the union of the spirit within each one of us, the self, with the divine energy of creation that surrounds us all. This yoga or union has a place in all religions and philosophies. It's enlightenment to the Buddhists, moksha to the Hindus, the ru to Muslims, the cool breeze of the Holy Ghost to Christians and so on. This joining, this union, this yoga is a physical experience. It's the bringing of the spirit into the central nervous system. It's the manifestation of the self. In other words, this self-realization can be felt. And once gained, it can be used to grow in spirituality, to improve health and well-being, and all aspects of life. In the past, this yoga was the result of years, perhaps lifetimes, of sacrifice and dedication. Years in the jungles, very hard work. But Srimataji Nirmala Devi, the founder of Sahaja Yoga, discovered a way in which this union, this enlightenment, can be gained very simply, easily, spontaneously. Hence the name Sahaja Yoga. Sahaja means born with or spontaneous. So Sahaja draws attention to the fact that we all have within us the mechanisms to gain the yoga. The Hatha of Hatha Yoga draws attention to gaining the union through exercises. The Bhakti of Bhakti Yoga states an approach to yoga through prayer and surrender. Raja Yoga uses the intellect. Each of these yogas uses its own system in the hope of gaining, eventually, the union, the enlightenment. Grow spiritually in our way, they say, and you will gain your yoga, your moksha. But Shrimatiji, with Sahaja Yoga, has turned the whole system on its head and starts with the yoga. Get the union, the enlightenment, the yoga first, Shrimatiji says, and spiritual growth will follow. It's an historical revolution, the first time in history that realization of the self has been offered collectively, en masse, Shrimatiji calls it. 
she will be offering the experience of this union to all of you who desire it later in the programme. Well, that gives a rough idea of Sahaja Yoga. So now to Dr. Ramesh Manogsha. As a scientist, what exactly is meditation? It's a good question, uh, Brian. Um, and it's something that uh, I spend many uh, hours lecturing uh, to audiences uh, in Australia and around the world uh, to try and explain that probably in the last 40 to 45 years, Western scientists actually haven't worked out that question. Um, and this is probably because uh, as far as a Western perspective on meditation is concerned, that there is very little alignment between our current Western scientific understandings of meditation and the way that meditation has been uh, described in the ancient Eastern tradition. And that's where our uh, meditation research program uh, comes in and, and that's what I think gives the research program that we're conducting here uh, unique relevance in that we've gone back into the ancient understandings of meditation and instead of understanding meditation as a form of relaxation or as a way of focusing attention or as a way of restructuring our thinking processes, we've defined meditation as an experience of mental silence or nirvichara samadhi. And this is actually the way that the ancients have defined meditation uh, for more than the last many thousands of years. So mental silence and meditation are one and the same thing in a sense. Yes, I think if you go back and, and look at the ancient descriptions of meditation, we actually find that um, meditation is defined specifically as the experience that exists or that can be attained in the space between the thoughts rather than in the way that we conduct our thoughts. So this definition is very specific. It's an experiential definition and it's a very specific experience that has been um, defined and described as comprising uh, the practice or experience or a process of meditation. Is there um, uh, factual records? I mean, is the writing uh, early on about this? There's a great deal of writing uh, available <coughs> on the topic. It's just that um, Western scholars have actually glossed over it, ignored it or not understood the significance. Probably the most ancient description uh, can be found in the Mahabharata, which is a very ancient uh, scripture, many, many thousands of years old. I think um, ancient Hindu tradition would say that the Mahabharata is at least seven to 10,000 years old. That contains the well-known Bhagavad Gita. Yes, the Bhagavad Gita is, is just it's one chapter. Yes, mm. And um, uh, archaeoastronomers who uh, use the um, astronomical alignments described in the Mahabharata would say that it's about four and a half thousand years old. Western scholars think it's about three thousand years old. So by any account, it's ancient. And in this scripture or story, we probably uh, we find what is probably the most ancient description of meditation available to us today and in that description uh, the writer of the Mahabharata describes the state of meditation as being a state in which one does not think and uh, in fact the actual verse is like a log he does not think 
That is the most ancient description of meditation available to us. And in this most ancient description is a very, very specific definition. That's, uh, so so the, 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 the link between um, thoughtless awareness, in other words, um, uh, mental silence, uh, goes back a long way. It's ancient and um, it, we can find uh, revitalizations and redescriptions of that basic experience dotted throughout the spiritual history of the East. I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that, or the difference between Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy. Western philosophy is very much uh, um, an exploration of changing attitudes um, and in trying to pin down the precise thinking uh, uh, at any given time whereas eastern philosophy is all very pragmatic it's it's like uh, unless it's useful unless it's uh, has a valuable valuable use um, then it's not really of any value in other words there's a a, uh, a close-knit something between eastern philosophy and religion which uh, is intriguing when when you think uh, when you place meditation in that context yes it's i suppose if, at the risk of making broad generalizations we could say that uh, western philosophy is is more or less mapping out fashions of thought and this probably relates back to uh, primarily to descartes and his um uh, existential definition which is that uh, the cogito statement well i think therefore i am and that is more or less mapped it out for all of us ever since in the west and that that we define ourselves according to the pattern and nature of our thoughts and thinking processes this is very interesting because if we look at the eastern uh, philosophical approach and uh, eastern culture as a result um, it's focused on this, on transcendence from thought. In other words, the idea that we are not our thoughts, but we are something else. Uh, so now we are, are back into uh, meditation as something which is um, appropriate to to um, to the to the ancients, to the old, and. To present times. Dawn Mantras by Australian composer Ross Edwards. A lovely and restful piece of music, good for absorbing, for quietening down. It lasts about seven minutes. We'll be playing sections of it throughout the program.
As I said, today in the studio we have Dr. Ramesh Manoksha, whose recent PhD thesis on meditation has drawn considerable praise. Ramesh, during your years at the Royal Hospital for Women, you've undertaken a number of research projects to find out the effects of meditation on various human problems and illnesses. Can you tell us something about those projects? Yes. Um, I think probably the most important uh, uh, generalisation that we can draw from the research is that one of the elephants in the room, I would say, uh, as far as meditation research is, is concerned in the West, is that despite 40 years of, of research into meditation, thousands, in fact about 3,500 published research articles on meditation, all of the re most reliable and uh, thorough reviews of this data ha have failed to demonstrate a, uh, a significant effect above and beyond placebo or what we call non-specific effects in association with the way that scientists have understood meditation. And so really, despite such a great deal of uh, intense scientific focus and, and activity, we have really not seen um, an effect uh, worth talking about. Now, in contrast with this, our research program, which has redefined meditation uh, as the experience of mental silence, we have started to see uh, consistent patterns to indicate that mental silence, the experience of mental silence, and therefore the idea of meditation as the state of nivichara samadhi is actually associated with specific, measurable and significant effects, practically and statistically significant effects, above and beyond that of placebo. And this is a remarkable step forward because really we've been more or less uh, marching in the same spot or treading water for 40 years. But by redefining meditation as the state of mental silence, we have seen, probably for the first time, a consistent pattern of specific effect um, to indicate that this approach to meditation has a therapeutic effect. And we've tested it in a number of different scenarios. So we've done low-quality studies, what I would call exploratory or um, pilot research in a wide range of clinical areas, uh, menopausal hot flushes, uh, migraine, chronic back pain. Um, uh, but we've also done very thorough studies looking at the effect of meditation uh, on asthma, on um, uh, occupational stress, and, uh, and more recently on common behavioural problems such as ADHD and um, uh, social skills, uh, even corporate and social responsibility in, uh, in uh, corporate executives. What was the result of those um, studies? Well, the, let's, have a, let's talk about uh, our asthma study because uh, not only has that been published in a very high-ranking journal, but um, it manifested some interesting changes worth talking about that exemplify uh, these uh, unique uh, features of our research program. So in, in the asthma study, we assessed the impact of meditation on uh, a group of people whose asthma was so severe that despite being on maximal medication, conventional medication, they were still experiencing symptoms. We added 
to their treatment regime either mental silence approach to meditation or a conventional stress management program which was endorsed by the New South Wales Department of Health. So half of them received the mental silence uh, intervention, Sahaja Yoga, and half received uh, the stress management program. Now the importance of this is that we <coughs> matched uh, the both treatment programs in every respect as best we could. So both groups got uh, a room at the hospital down the road. They both got uh, comfy chairs. They go, both got an air-conditioned uh, space with nice windows and an instructor that cared. They both got CDs and a, and a booklet to take home with tasks to do every day. So we matched it for what we call non-specific factors very, very closely. And despite this, at the end of the program, um, on a number of our outcome measures, there were significant differences. Now, I'll talk about two of them. First of all, as you would expect, I suppose, both groups improved in terms of their psychological state um, because you would expect both a stress management program and a meditation program to have positive effects on, on mood or psychological state. So that's not surprising. But what was surprising was that the impact of the mental silence approach or the Sahaja Yoga meditation program was double in effect, double the size of the impact uh, that the stress management group experienced. So the improvement in the stress management group in psychological state was about 13 to 15%. But uh, the improvement in the group experiencing or being taught Sahaja Yoga meditation was around 26 to 28%. So it's almost a double um, impact or twice the size of the effect. And that happened over what, what period of time? That was quite a long treatment period. That was about 14 to 16 weeks. So it wasn't uh, overnight. Uh, but um, the fact that there was a difference of that magnitude, that it was statistically significant and what we call clinically significant. Clinically significant merely means practically significant. It's, it's a twice the uh, bang for your buck, I suppose you could say. And that's, uh, that's really important to see that. And that, that impact on psychological state has been replicated in a much larger study looking at occupational stress, which we might get time to talk about later. But possibly even more remarkable was the impact on a measure which we call airway hyperresponsiveness. Now, that's a big, long word, but really what it is is a relatively direct measure of the severity of the physical disease state in the airways of the asthma sufferers. And what we saw at the end of the treatment program was that the people who went through the stress management arm of the of the experiment didn't manifest any significant change by the end of the program. In other words, the severity of the disease state really didn't shift. But what we saw in the meditation group was that there was a substantial shift in the severity of the disease state. So that people who were in the mild category of asthma, for example, shifted to the normal, no asthma. People in the moderate went to mild, people in the severe went to moderate. In general, there was a shifting of a whole category uh, towards normality. <clears throat> and what this tells us is that given that the two groups were matched on pretty much every factor that we could manage, the difference between the two groups, we would assume, is the focus on mental silence and the fact that we observe in association with that, that mental silence feature a significant shift of improvement 
in the actual physical disease process suggests that something going on upstairs in our brain or in our mind, in our awareness, is filtering down and having an impact on the disease process uh, <clears throat> in the lungs. Now, that's remarkable um, because of the fairly tight methodology or very tight methodology that we used. And it suggests that this mental silence approach is not just something that makes you feel good at a psychological level, but is having some sort of impact at the physical level as well. So this is actually definable, discernible and can be recorded in, <coughs> oh, excuse me, can be recorded in um, graphs and statements and and presentations to objectively uh, measurable yeah. magazines and so on. Yes. Um, meditation then, mental silence, is is closely linked to health in terms of in terms of mental health itself. What which is important? Prevention of problems or or cures? Where where does mental silence fit into that pattern? Well, probably before we go into that, let's set the scene. It's predicted that in the next decade or so, the most common disease in the West is going to be depression. And uh, it's going, they're calling it a silent epidemic because you don't fall over in the street with a clutching your chest or you don't uh, turn up at your doctor's office with an abnormal blood test. You simply become profoundly unhappy and dysfunctional. Now, <clears throat> this has brought about a great deal of discussion and uh, uh, a recognition that we need in the West some sort of method that will act as a primary prevention method measure. So in the same way that we vaccinate our children against uh, uh, diphtheria and whooping cough and, and measles and, and nowadays uh, chicken pox as well in the same way that we take vaccinations before we go overseas for cholera we need a method, we need a strategy by which we can immunise ourselves against uh, the vicissitudes of life and prevent the, this um, looming epidemic of, of mental illness and I believe that meditation is quite possibly the closest we will come to to an ideal universal primary prevention method with regard to mental health what an interesting idea that the that mental silence should be undertaken by a generation to prevent uh, problems in the future like depression
from Atiji Nirmaladevi, who discovered such an easy way of gaining self-realization and therefore achieving this mental silence, talks frequently about meditation. These remarkable statements of hers were recorded in 1976. We cannot meditate. We only can be in meditation. When we say we are going to meditate, it has no meaning. We have to be in meditation. Either you are inside the house or outside the house. You cannot be inside the house and then say that now I am outside the house. Or when you are outside the house, you cannot say, I am inside the house. In the same way, we, you are moving in three dimensions of your life, of emotional and physical and mental being. <coughs> you are not inside yourself. But when you are inside that you are in thoughtless awareness, then not only that you are there, but you are everywhere. Because that is the place, that is the point where you are really in universe. From there you are in contact with the principle, with the Shakti, with the power that permeates into every particle that is matter, into every thought that is emotion into every planning and thinking of the whole world. You permeate into all the elements that have created this beautiful earth. You permeate into earth, you permeate into akasha, into teja, into sound, But <coughs> your movement is very slow. Then you say, I am meditating. That means you are moving in permeation with the universal being. But you are not moving yourself. You are just unloading yourself to be free from the weight of things that do not allow you to move. <coughs> when you are in meditation, you must allow yourself to be in thoughtless awareness. There the unconscious itself, the achetana itself, will take charge. You will start moving with the force of achetana. The unconscious is going to work it out it is going to take you there, where it wants you to go. You keep to thoughtless awareness all the time. Try to keep to thoughtless awareness as much as you can. When you are in thoughtless awareness, you must know that you are in the kingdom of God. And His people, His arrangements, His consciousness is going to look after you. Even when you are giving vibrations to other people, I have noticed 
that you are not in thoughtless awareness. If you give vibrations in thoughtless awareness, you will not catch it, because all these entities that enter into you, all these material problems that come into you, come when you are in those three dimensions. Through Sahaja Yoga you have opened your gates of your own being. You have entered into your own kingdom, but you do not keep there, you come out of it, and again you go back and settle down. Doesn't matter. You should not feel so disappointed about it, so frustrated. You know, people have worked for thousands of years and they could not separate themselves from themselves. Only you people, the Sahajogi, whom are made after the pattern of Sri Ganesh himself are so powerful that they can give awakening and realization to other people. Even if you are caught up, you have seen you have powers. Even if you feel that the vibrations are not coming, you know you have powers. You can give realizations to others. In your presence people get realization. But you have to be that power completely. <coughs> Supposing there's something wrong with your car, but it, as long as it is moving, it's all right. You have to repair it. We have to repair all the time all our wounds, which we have caused ourselves by our foolishness, by our lust, by our greed, by so many false identifications we carried with ourselves. We must have a complete attention towards our weakness and not towards our achievements. If we know what are our weaknesses, it's better that we can really swim across better. Supposing on a ship there is a hole and the water is coming in through that hole. The attention of all the crew, of all the staff and the captain itself will be on that hole from where the water is coming in and nowhere else. In the same way you must be on the watch out. There are so many pitfalls for a Sahaja Yogi, I have seen it. <coughs> of course, even the past is over. Even the past can be overcome. In the present also they have many shadows of the past working. For example, when you are sitting in a group, you are involved with each other. Those who are in, involved with each other by any relationship whatsoever must know that this kind of involvement is not going to help them to attain their individual ascent. Everybody is ascending individually, though you are collectively contacted with each other and in communication, but the ascendance is individual, absolutely individual. So whether he is your son, brother, sister, wife, friend, you must remember that you are not responsible for their ascendance. 
You cannot help them for their assets. Only mother's grace and their own desire, their own effort to give up all that is three-dimensional will help them. So whenever a thought comes like that, you must know that you have not attained the thoughtless awareness in its full extent. And that's how you have problems which are three-dimensional. Sometimes a Sahaja Yogi will find an emotional will come into his mind. It will be an emotion of dejection or frustration, and he'll be disgusted with himself or with others. Both things are just the same. I've seen some Sahaja Yogis get very disgusted with others. There should be no disgust that is lasting. Of course, for a short time you might feel a disgust, it's all right, it's a passing phase. Or you might feel disgusted with yourself, maybe a passing phase. But if you go on hankering on to it, or if you go on clinging to it, that means you are conditioning yourself. That means you are not in thoughtless awareness. That means that you are in your past. You are making your past a solid mass on your head. In the present, everything is fleeting. Everything is fleeting. That is not eternal. In the present, the eternal stays. The rest all drops out. It's like a moving river which doesn't stop anywhere. But the moving river is eternal. The rest of the things are all changing. If you are on the eternal principle, all that is not eternal changes and drops out, dissolves and becomes non-existent. Ramesh, uh, you, you mentioned about the threat of depression as being um, a new, perhaps even universal complaint, um, and how building thoughtless awareness, mental silence, meditation into education and a way of life could overcome this. How do you justify this? It's a good question. <clears throat> Well, there are uh, a number of studies that we've conducted that uh, lead me to feel that uh, regular practice of meditation is an important buffer 
against mental illness, and I'll tell you about two. One was probably one of the most unprecedented studies of meditation uh, ever done, and we're still putting together the uh, report for publication. But effectively, what we did was uh, study every long-term meditator that was using Sahaja Yoga meditation in Australia. So we found about 350 meditators with a range of experience or daily practice from two to 30 years of regular practice. And we assessed them using a a number of uh, scientifically validated and verified measurement scales. And in fact, these scales, uh, these tests uh, were used, uh, are used regularly by the Australian Bureau of Statistics and the Australian Government to assess the mental health and well-being of the Australian population. And uh, the first thing we found was that uh, the general health or functional health profile of the long-term meditators as compared to the Australian population, was significantly higher on the majority of uh, measurement points. But probably the largest margin of advantage that the meditators experienced was in the domain of mental health, where um, there was a substantial difference between their mental health profile and the mental health profile of the Australian population. When we drilled into that data... Uh, we came across a relationship which we didn't expect at all. And in fact, it led me to redo that survey at least a couple of times more to see if that that result was replicable. And it was. And the the remarkable uh, finding was this, that the mental health score, in other words, the rating of that person's mental health, the meditator's mental health, was directly related to how often they experienced mental silence for more than a few minutes per day. So those people, those meditators who experienced the state of mental silence for more than for, uh, for more than a few minutes a day, several times per day, had the highest mental health rating. Mm. Whereas those who experienced it once or twice a day had the next highest. Those who experienced it once or twice a week, the next and those who experienced it less often, the next, and so on and so forth. There was a a linear relationship, statistically significant, um, practically significant, and what it said was that the more often you're experiencing mental silence, the more likely you are to have a good state of mental health. So that was an interesting population study. But in research, we we say that that was a very strong association, but association doesn't prove causality. But our second study did indicate causality, and that's where we did a randomised controlled trial of uh, meditation uh, on occupational stress in full-time workers, where we looked at specifically again at mental health state, and we looked at three aspects of health, mental health, stress, anxiety, and depressive symptoms. We treated these people for eight weeks, twice a week, in the CBD of Sydney. They were full-time white-collar workers uh, for the most part. A very large trial, 173 people participated, which makes it one of the larger uh, studies on meditation and and definitely uh, methodologically robust. And uh, we compared the mental silence approach, or Saja Yoga, to a non-mental silence approach and also to a non-treatment group as well. 
And what we found, again, the same pattern as I described for the asthma study. Both treatment groups improved, but the, the improvement in the mental silence group was in general double that of the improvement seen mm. in the non-mental silence group. It's remarkable. Particularly in the area of anxiety and depression type depressive type factors. So these people weren't depressed, but they were a bit stressed and they were a bit unhappy. And what we found was that meditation actually improved that aspect of their experience and that the focus on mental silence was particularly uh, effective, specifically effective in ameliorating that part of their mood state. And so that does indicate causality. So if we add the two studies together, what we have is uh, <clears throat> a population of long-term meditators are better off than the general background population in mm -hmm. terms of mental health. And then in our other study, we show that this isn't a coincidence. It's actually a cause and effect relationship. This, uh, um, in maybe in future, yes, there, there, there could be a way of drawing meditation into the, the, the way of life. Presumably, this will happen more and more and more. But at the moment, um, if there is a desire to gain this um, mental silence, this, uh, this centered quality, this valuable meditation, when uh, advice or assistance is sought, um, how do we tell a shonky practitioner from an, from an honest one? It's a good question. It's a difficult question to answer, but there are definitely some common sense guidelines. <clears throat> and as I said before, this is in fact the, uh, the second elephant in the room because it's often politically incorrect to talk about these issues. But in fact, uh, they're very important that we discuss them. <clears throat> now... Our research program, again, in a, I suppose you could say a world first, is one of the first, did one of the first systematic collations of adverse effects associated with meditation. And we found uh, quite a few instances uh, reported in the literature, isolated cases mostly, but in some cases patterns and systematic uh, um, uh, associations as well. The first generalization we can make about that is that the commercialized uh, forms of meditation are much, much more likely to be associated with negative effects. Second, that uh, the negative effects uh, associated with meditation are more likely to be experienced in con if they are propagated by uh, what I would call exploitative organizations. Uh, another word you could use is cults. And I think the third um, guideline is that if it offends your common sense, it probably isn't good <laughs> for you. So there are three very simple guidelines. You don't need to wear a saffron robe. You don't need to be a vegetarian. You don't need to shell out a lot of money and you don't need to do anything stupid um, to get the experience. And if they ask you to do that, then you probably should walk away.
Ganesh is saying, there are two main forces that keep us out of the center. The stress on one side, which can take us in, in the right way, in the, in the right-hand way, and there's depression, which can take us out of the center into the left. But in the center is this path of meditation. In the center is the ever-present now. It's a phrase that Shumatiji quite often uses, and I enjoy it very much, the ever-present now. In a way, that is the mental silence, that's the meditation. That's the thoughtless awareness. To gain this quality, one needs to gain one's self-realization. So, those of you who are listening to this program, those who would like to gain their self-realization and open the way to the mental silence, the health and well-being that Ramesh has been talking about, slip off your shoes to be nearer to Mother Earth, sit comfortably, place your hands on your lap, palm upward, relax. Now take the right hand, place it on the heart. Affirmation at this point. Make the affirmation, I am the spirit. There is an energy within us, which is at the base of the spine. The Kundalini is the Sanskrit name for it. It's the life force. And when circumstances are appropriate, it can unwind and rise up through the spine to the very top of the head. This kundalini rising opens all the energy centers within us. So with a hand on the heart, the affirmation that I am the spirit, opens this heart energy center. Kundalini is the mothering energy in us. Mother, Mother Kundalini, I am the spirit. Now leaving the left hand on the lap, take the right hand down to opposite the base of the spine. And now raise the right hand straight up through the body through the head to the top of the head and do it again take the hand down to the base of the spine now slowly raise the ha that hand up the front of the body up in front of the head to the top of the head 
do it a third time. Now place the hand across the forehead. One of the things that can hold us back from gaining our self-realization is our inability to forgive. Holding a grudge can get in the way, can drag us into the past, or take us off into the future in some weird hope of revenge. So with a hand across the forehead, Mother Kundalini, I forgive. I forgive. Let those grudges drop away. Drop away with the guilt and the anger. Now place the hand, stretching the fingers, place the hand on the very top of the head and move the scalp. Circle it in a sort of clockwise way. Circle the hand with the stretched fingers and here Shri Mother Kundalini, please grant me my self-realization. Please grant me my moksha, my enlightenment, my union, my yoga. the hand a few centimeters above the head you might be able to feel an energy that you yourself are generating it might be cool it might be warm but that is the energy of kundalini that is the energy of self-realization and if you don't feel it now with regular meditation, you most certainly will. Just place the hands back on the lap and listen to the music for...
Dr. Ramesh Manoksha. Uh, recently, um, R- Ramesh, the Sydney Morning Herald reprinted from the English newspaper The Independent a major article on the value of relaxation and meditation. The article claimed that all forms of meditation are valuable, particularly in overcoming stress, boosting immunity, lowering high blood pressure, and even increasing fertility. Does your extensive uh, research confirm these claims? Well, yes and no. In the short time that we've got left uh, to answer that, it's a... In fact, much of my doctoral thesis is, is focused on trying to address this issue. First of all, uh, the answer is yes, insofar that any uh, method that makes you feel calm, relaxed, happy, um, rested, will have a positive uh, effect on your psyche and your biology. The, the crux of the matter, however, is that whether or not meditation has a specific effect above and beyond taking a walk in the park, sitting down under a tree or taking a nap or, or doing a breathing method or um, listening to music. Now, if we define meditation as a method of relaxation, then the answer is no. Meditation has no, no greater effect than any other approach to relaxing or feeling good, whether or not that's listening to music or breathing regularly or anything like that. Another placebo. Another placebo. Oh, you could say a placebo or a more diplomatic way of saying that is a non-specific effect <laughs> uh, or what we would call bedside manner. Now, an, but if we define meditation as a state of mental silence, then we see that in fact meditation as mental silence has a substantial specific effect above and beyond those effects mentioned in the Herald. And this is actually a, a broader problem in that the media... Uh, and the scientific establishment aren't understanding the importance of making a distinction between relaxation and meditation and are thereby perpetuating a misperception that is to the detriment of consumers. Hmm. Well, we are reaching the end of our program. Anybody who would like more information uh, about meditation or like... If they could ring the, the number that I'll give in a moment. Excuse me, I'm going to cough again. <coughs> um, and we'll uh, take down that, that uh, information and uh, there, there will be a response. But it needs to be soon after the ending of this program. Here's the telephone number. 9514-9500. So if you have any queries concerning matters that have been raised in this program. 9514-9500, straight after the program. Of course, also we have um, for Sahaj Yoga, um, www.freemeditation.com and 1300-724-252. The telephone number again, 1300 724 252. Good meditating. Have a good week. We'll see you next week.